You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So today, you about womanism and womanist theology. When we think about Black history, we often forget about the contributions of Black women. Um, I remember looking on Facebook and seeing the list of people that you all had signed up, and I was like, oh, there's one woman. That's not enough. So we're going to do a whole like collection of women today. Um, but yeah, when we think about Black history, we often forget about the contributions of Black women. When we think about church history, we often forget about the contributions of Black women, especially in deconstruction. We often assume that deconstruction began when white men suddenly were done with evangelicalism. And that's just not true. Change seldom begins with white men thinking differently. Okay. (laughs) With social justice, especially white men have a lot to lose. This is why. If women were allowed to marry other women, then that means men are not needed sexually. If men are allowed to marry other men or to be with other men in a socially acceptable way, that means there's limited control over reproduction. If women have the right of choice over their own bodies, over their own reproduction, that means limited control over their bodies. If black people are fully human, fully equal in the eyes of God and the law, then that means white men lose their supremacy in the church and in all other facets of life, especially the law. Paul said, we are all one in Christ. There is no Jew, nor Greek, slave, nor free. We are all one in Christ. If black women's contributions to society and history and theology are celebrated, then that means the contributions of white men are not ultimate. They have to share the glory, the credit for the freedom that we get to live out today. And so if change seldom begins with white men, why do we assume that with deconstruction? Why do we assume Christianity would be any different? As Americans, we are culturally conditioned to not see the ways that black women are left out of our discussions on deconstruction and on anything but their contributions to liberation theology are incredible. Despite being constantly ignored, erased, black women remain and have what they call a womanist theology that is not only powerful and life-giving for them, but healthy and powerful and life-giving for everyone, regardless of race, class, or gender. So for those of you who read Christina Cleveland's book, God is a Black Woman, you'll remember that she wrote that God is a black woman and that God cherishes your weaknesses, vulnerabilities, strengths, and your needs, which is very different than what we learned in the evangelical church. In the evangelical church, God hates your vulnerabilities. Your vulnerabilities are a liability. They are to be eradicated through sanctification. And she says, no, when God is a black woman, God cherishes your needs, vulnerabilities, strengths and weaknesses. God loves you as you are, but more just cherishes the parts of you that you think you should be so ashamed of. This understanding is so different from the hellfire and brimstone white male God we were taught to believe in, 
but it is a good understanding of womanist theology. So what does womanist mean? Okay, I'm throwing around that word. It's a really beautiful word. And I'm gonna give you Alice Walker's definition. Womanist is a black feminist or feminist of color. From the black folk expression of mothers to female children, you act in womanish, womanish i.e. like a woman. It usually refers to outrageous, audacious, courageous, and willful behavior, wanting to know more and in greater depth than is considered good for someone. Interested in grown-up things, acting grown-up, being grown-up, interchangeable with another Black folk expression, you trying to be grown-up, responsible, in charge, serious. A womanist is someone who is often labeled as someone who loves other women, sexually or non-sexually, appreciates and prefers women's culture, women's emotional flexibility, values tears as a natural counterbalance to laughter, and women's strength, sometimes loves individual men, sexually or non-sexually. But a womanist is committed to survival and wholeness of an entire people, male, female, or all in between. A womanist is not a separatist except periodically for health. A womanist loves music, according to Alice Walker, loves dance, loves the moon, loves the spirit, loves food and roundness, loves struggle, loves the folk, loves herself, regardless, no matter what. A womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. I love womanist theology so much so that I want to get a PhD in it. And I want to get a PhD on how to use womanist theology to write curriculum for children and youth for their spiritual formation. I think womanist theology is the healthiest way to understand God and how to practice our Christian faith. And so I'm excited that we get to talk about it today. But I'm also a white Hispanic. Both my parents are of European descent. One just happens to be from England and the other one, Spain. In many ways, I am far removed from the lived experiences of black women. And so instead of spending the next 20 minutes talking to you about what I know about black women and their the theological contribution to our collective liberation, I'm gonna show you a 12 minute video on the history of womanism in the Christian church and how it was born through Union Theological Seminary. Union Theological Seminary is a private ecumenical, meaning like many Christian traditions, ecumenical Christian liberal seminary in Manhattan, and it's affiliated with Columbia. It is the oldest independent seminary in the United States, and it has been long known as a bastion for progressive theology. There has been a number of prominent thinkers and faculty, some of who you'll see on the video, but also Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, an alumni of Union. And James Cohn, who I think Aaron spoke about a couple of weeks ago, was a former faculty. So as you watch the video, I want you to think about the questions that these women wrestle with. I want you to intentionally look for the ways that they deconstruct. What is truth? Think about that. And how do we define it? What kind of power do we take away from people when we assert that there is no truth? What role can seminaries play in theological deconstruction? What role can they play in a, in a healthy deconstruction? 
I define, I think deconstruction can sometimes be not healthy. I define healthy deconstruction as any kind of unlearning that leads to advocacy, social change, liberation, and a renewed sense of faith that is inclusive and life-giving. I think unhealthy deconstruction can lead to nihilism and depression, a soul-crushing, shattering uh, understanding. And it can often lead to exclusivity. If you don't think this way, you're not part of our cool kids club. But how can seminaries foster healthy deconstruction? That's a question I often think about. And then another question, a couple questions I have, and I'll, I'll repeat these as we go up. What does it mean to live beyond the old wounds of religious trauma? Because Black women have a lot of religious trauma too. What can we learn from Black women about social change and liberation? So these are just some of the questions I have. We can also talk about whatever you find that stands out to you from the video. It's a 12 minute video. And so let's watch and then we can have a discussion. Being a front runner in a lot of this work, people want to dismiss the truth that I speak as anecdotal. If I don't have a scientific database where I can prove that what I've experienced is true for so many people, then it's not true. So the epistemological see of forgetfulness is when people take truth that hurts, truth that goes to the core of the being, truth that goes to the marrow of the bone, and people want to say, if you can't prove it scientifically, factually, then it doesn't exist. So what I try to encourage people to do is that kind of truth that stings like a serpent's tooth, that kind of truth that makes your teeth itch, the kind of truth that causes some people to lose their minds up in here, up in here. So even when people call your truth a lie, tell it anyway, tell it anyway. Being a very attentive child, I started kindergarten when I was three, and so I was always concerned about race and justice, because going to this kindergarten was a Lutheran kindergarten where we learned the Beatitudes and the Ten Commandments and all about sin and how much God loves us, and yet I couldn't understand what Black people had done. And this is a theological question of three. What we had done as Black people, that we couldn't go to parks, we couldn't go to skating rinks, we couldn't go to the library, we couldn't go to anything except to church and the black school. Growing up in Dayton, when I think of growing up in Dayton, Ohio, which is where I'm from, I think of really two things. I think that it was a place which was a very protected place for me and a very protected space because I grew up in an all black neighborhood, went to an all black school, which was the neighborhood school. And we were all fairly relatively privileged. The other part of the reality, even in my privileged black self, Dayton, it was in Dayton where I became aware of, of race. Being black and in America and in the South actually meant that you learn um, the ways um, very quickly. Uh, or uh, you are punished for not learning the ways. 
I knew first about being black and I grew up with my mother um, braiding my hair in the morning, listening to Jesse Helms's editorials about the Negras and uh, the, the hate mongers who were coming from the North stirring things up. And my parents never said anything about that. They allowed me to listen and to start putting pieces together because the people, the black folk he was describing simply were not the people I knew growing up. In 1974, when I arrived at Union, uh, straight out of college, 21, 22 years old, in this male-dominated space, which is theological education, they were saying, God can't call women to preach. And I was already ordained. Being so conscious so early about racism, I had no idea that sexism was, uh, was parallel. I came to Union because James Cone was here. I tell you, Jim Cone provided a space, uh, at, at least at that time, and I don't know if there are many other places even today, he provided a space for Black women. And he was the one that kept raising the question, there must, it must matter, it must make a difference that you're a woman. At the same time that I was at Union, I say Union radicalized me as a woman because I never experienced sexism from the Black community until I got up here with these Black male preachers up here. Again, these Black guys up here, I got up here and they were talking about what we couldn't do as women. You can't be in the pulpit. You can't do this. You can't do that. These brothers radicalized me. I come from a family uh, that was there wasn't is very church related. I'm a, I'm a, what's what's called a PK preacher's kid, and in that context, family context, in the church context, um, there were no limitations set upon me as a as a black um, uh, girl uh, living even in South Carolina. So I came to Union Theological Seminary actually with the intention of. Uh, doing further study in uh, Black theology. And of course, I had a very um, um, uh, serious interest in anything that had to do with women because I had begun experiencing um, some limitations that the church and uh, church people place upon women. The call that I've had on my life, I think was started from day one in uh, church school. It was that environment that made me question a God of vengeance um, and only vengeance. And I, I, I literally remember one day listening to the pastor preach this fire and brimstone speech or sermon, and I knew he was wrong. Well, when you start with an understanding of a God of love and that God wants and does love everyone, Justice isn't very far behind. Union was the, I think, best place for me uh, to be, uh, but that does not mean, certainly, that uh, our presence here, my presence here, and the presence of other um, Black um, uh, students, uh, MDiv or PhD students, uh, does not mean that our presence here were, was without um, problems without experiences of racism, experiences of sexism, uh, even classism. Union was always known as a seminary that faced the world, meaning it was always involved with the real issues of life. Uh, it was involved with life in New York City. 
when I think about how I came to write my book, Sexuality in the Black Church, it was really a pretty personal journey for me. And if anyone told me that that's what I was going to be writing on, I would have told them they were crazy. I dedicated the book to my best friend, whom I called my cousin, and was the godfather of my son, Lloyd. And in many respects, it was Lloyd who made me write the book. By the time I wrote the book, Lloyd had passed uh, to complication from AIDS. Lloyd happened to be one of the best human beings I would ever have the privilege of knowing. He loved the church, but his church didn't love him back. So somehow I knew that if I was going to stay in this church, I had to figure it out because I was really in, when I wrote that book, was really writing out of this kind of existential dilemma and pain. How can I love a church that was treating someone like Lloyd so badly? And so I knew if I was going to stay in this Black church, I had to figure it out. And that's what I did. And so I sort of, when they say theology is faith, seeking understanding, that's what writing that book was for me. What we knew was that we were doing a necessary work. It was clear that our issues were not being addressed in uh, the feminist movement in, in any significant way. It was clear that our issues were not being addressed in the Black theological movement in any significant way. Um, and therefore, it was um, additionally clear that we needed to um, invoice Black women. We needed to um, bring our voices to the table and to make sure that our voices uh, are heard. Liberation cannot become a reality as long as people uh, within our communities are discriminated against, as long as they are uh, uh, depressed and suppressed and oppressed. Uh, in fact, we must be able to move beyond those single issues and develop uh, real liberation for all of God's people. Everybody has a vocation. And you don't leave this life until you finish the work God has called you to do. And some people go sooner than others, but everybody has a call in your life. And part of your responsibility as a Christian, as a teenager, was to find out what is God calling you to do? What's the work your soul must have uh, so that you can live a faithful life and a full life? Here in Union, you find that you are going to be stretched. And for me, the woman is ethics have allowed me to find a new way of understanding myself and which has stretched me to embrace myself much more than I've ever done before. I have this belief that the memory, the body holds memory um, and that there is something ontological about being black and female uh, that's divine, that's, uh, healing uh, that is so necessary and vital for our community. Black women in America are morally bound to be justice-seeking whole human beings, even in the face of being told 
sometimes relentlessly so, that we are less than whole, we are less than human. Don't believe that lie. Don't live our lives in a lie. We cannot live our lives in the folds of old wounds. It's not healthy. It's not life-giving. It doesn't bring in justice. It doesn't bring in the next generation. So that's what the moral imperative is for Black women, to live life beyond those old wounds, those old, old folds. Know they're there, but we don't have to live in them and through them. Take seriously that this is the land of the free. Create spaces and more spaces and more spaces of freedom so that people can become who they are, what they're about, what they can be, and that um, there are no limits. And in the midst of that, do so with a strong sense of justice and bringing others along with us. Thank you, Bob. All right. Now is the time for discussion. Anybody want to chat or reflect or share anything that you found in the film? I hope you really hurt how these women deconstructed. Thank you, babe. I hope you really heard how they had to unlearn things quickly in order to survive in some of these theological spaces. But um, I'm curious, what did you all think? What are some thoughts that you have? I can run through my questions too as well. Anybody have anything they want to share? Okay, I think it's time for communion, right, Bob? Sorry, I don't know why I wasn't thinking through. Before we do sharing time, Let's have Bob talk to us about communion and then maybe we'll share a little bit. But um, yeah, sorry. Thank you so much for listening and watching. <laughs> By the way, the band is awesome. Thank you so much. You guys are amazing. Well, as we typically do here at Central, we're going to uh, share in a time of communion together. And um, as we do this today, um, in the middle of Black History Month, um, thinking about um, not only how whitewashed things are, but how male-washed, is that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's so important for us to be thinking about these things. and. Um, and really recognizing the contributions of women, um, which is something that for millennia has been squandered um, in our histories, also in the church. So um, we, I'm glad we're taking this time to specifically hear those voices. Um, as we come together for communion today, um, if you're joining online, 
use whatever elements you have at home. Um, we have the juice and the crackers here that represent um, something sacred that can happen within us. They're just ordinary elements, but when we take them into ourselves, we become a part of the working of God in the world. Um, it's a physical, tangible reminder of the sacredness that is within each one of us. Um, and so Jesus, on the night that he was arrested, um, gathered in the upper room with his closest disciples, his closest friends, and they shared a meal together. And while they were eating, Jesus took the loaf and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, when supper was finished, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant poured out for all of you. Um, let that be the space that we are. We serve a God of brokenness, a God who brings people from the margins. Um, as we talk about what it means to be people of faith in the world, um, particularly here in Black History Month, as we remember the oppressed voices of our Black sisters and brothers, um, especially today, the voices of our sisters who haven't had a prominent space, who even in the midst of persecution, have been persecuted further. Um, we work for a space that can be open and free, and we're blind to it. Myself, especially being a white male, it's hard to see those things. So I thank you for that reminder. Let's pray. God of grace and hope, open our eyes to the prominence and importance of voices that are so often oppressed, that are pushed to the sidelines. God, let us stop from the feeds of the voices we know and recognize. Let us seek out the voices of the least of these. the voices who have been pushed aside. Allow us to be a part of raising those voices, not speaking more ourselves, but listening deeply and intently. Allow us to be changed and moved, we pray in Jesus' name. As we take this sacrament together, let us embody what it means to be people of justice and liberty and compassion, gathering closely and lifting up those who struggle and those whose voices are not heard and given a fair space. Amen. Here we practice communion by intinction and we serve each other in the pews. Um, so I'll uh, take these elements and you'll uh, take those and then pass them, serve them to the person next to you. And it's again a reminder that this is something we do together. Um, we are all ministers. We are all people who serve one another, and that's the only way that our church can function. It's the only way that the church can function. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings, learn to fly. All your life, 
You wait for this moment to rise. Blackbird singing in the dark. Take these sunken eyes and learn to see all your life. You're waiting for this moment to be free. that communion is back to normal again. It feels really good. Any thoughts, anything you want to share, any feedback, anything you want to talk about? What does it mean to live, oh. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> we'll figure this out together. Um, I, I know that you and I have talked about this, but I don't know much about Union Theological Seminary um, or seminaries in general, so I'm just curious, what is it about Union that makes it so special? Kind of like, what, why did all these <clears throat> um, kind of black women theological thinkers, why, why were they gravitated to that space if it was still kind of the space that was not 100% welcoming for them. Yeah, so Union Theological Seminary used to be Presbyterian. And it broke off from the General Assembly. It removed the General Assembly's veto, uh, right to veto faculty late, 18, late 1800s. And it became a fully independent seminary at that time. And since then, they've just been that oddball seminary that's incredibly, incredibly progressive. And what drew a lot of black women to that seminary in the late 80s, early 90s was James Cohn, who is, as you all know, this incredible pastor, leader, academic, who helped spearhead what we call black liberation theology, 
So a theology specific to the black experience, specific to liberating black people from oppression. Sometimes we can talk about progressive theology or just God and the Bible in general and completely ignore racism and completely ignore sexism and completely ignore lots of things. And so James Cone was the spearhead of bringing a liberating understanding of the Christian faith to the African-American experience. And so these women were drawn to that. And since then, Union has been known not only as like the main hub for black theological thought, but they've also been known for our theology around climate change. They have spearheaded a lot of that. They're just incredibly, incredibly progressive, and they have always been that way. Um, and so, yeah, um, even progressive seminaries are not perfect. And I'm sure when those women were in seminary that intersectionality wasn't really understood. You know, you can only really have one ism tied to you. Well, I'm gay, so that's it. You know, sexism doesn't really apply, nor does how we think about Hispanic people. And that's just not true. And so I imagine that has led to a lot of why they experienced that. And yet they still triumph. And yet they still struggle through the, the intellectual agony of how do I still worship a god where all these people who are supposed, supposedly leading this think I don't belong, you know? Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yes. Thank you. No, I was just going to say, like, um, I was the same as one of the ladies on that video where it was like, I was sitting in church and going, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> there was something inside of me. And then I was looking around going, well, something wrong with me? Because they're all into it. Like, they're dancing. They're crying, they got their ribbons going. I'm thinking, okay, something's obviously wrong with me. I'm not getting it, you know? I thought maybe getting saved would help. Although I got saved, didn't feel any different at all whatsoever. <laughs> so it was like, okay, well, I don't get it. This is how it's supposed to be. And I went out and talked to people who weren't Christian about the crap that they were telling me and I was judging people and, you know, against our own rights and all of the, it was like, you know, well, yeah, you can be gay, but you can't act on it, you know? It's hard because there is so much indoctrination and brainwashing to the point where, and I've said this a billion times here, where you're taught to not trust your own gut. If you have that feeling, my gut was just too loud and I think some people have a better ability to push it down, but mine controls me. <laughs> so maybe I allow it, I don't know. But so I had, I was like, okay, well, why is this person going to hell just because they don't go to my church or because they don't believe what I believe or because, you know, but all you gotta do, it's simple, is believe that Jesus was the son of God. That's it, they say except that's not it. It's all these other things that you have to do in your daily life and when you wake up and in your own head and in your own gut and in your own, you know, it's just, it's such a mind uh, mess, mess up, thank you, um, <laughs> that you don't, you don't even know what's up. And so you can't make sense of it when you're in it. It's only when, and most people have to leave the church to go, whoa, what the heck was going on there? 
So having to do that in the church with sexism, classism, racism, I, I can't imagine how these women came out of that, but thank God they did so that they could speak on it, you know? That was an awesome movie. Thank you. Yeah, the question Katie Cannon brings up right away, and these women have all published books that you can access, mm. that you can read, especially um, one called Sexuality in the Black Church, written in 1999, so long before being progressive was cool. Mm. <laughs> She's writing affirming theology. Anyway, um, Katie Cannon opens the video and says, you know, we wrestle with this idea that we have to have a biblical basis to base our truth, or it has to be a scientific fact in order to be true. And she's like, no, no, I don't need the, the Bible to make me, to say what I need it to say or to make me, to make it okay for me and my truth. You know, she was like, what's true to me stings. It like, it like hits me hard and it's, it's real whether I wanna believe it or not. I think that is really important for anybody, any kind of deconstruction. We are so anxious about what the Bible says, and we so desperately need the Bible to affirm certain things. And at the end of the day, the Bible can't do that. And that's, what, if that's at some point, that's got to be okay. We accept the Bible for what it is, and we don't allow ourselves to be enslaved to it anymore or to be enslaved to our youth pastor's interpretation to it anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, um, I went through like a three month detox or I'm in, I'm in month two where I've, I have stopped listening to any kind of evangelical preaching, podcasts, mm. uh, music, because I have been. I've been going to John MacArthur's church in the afternoons on Sundays. I've been, you know, I've, I listen to all sorts of evangelical stuff almost like a, a forensic psychologist, you know, kind of thing. But I thought, well, let me just try not listening at all for a couple months. Because people have been telling me that even just listening to it is hurtful. And in the last two months, I was telling Jen, I'm like, I feel so much happier. Mm. I feel far less anxious. I feel far less desperate for God, desperate for the, like, I feel okay. I feel at peace. Um, and so I will not be going back to some of those things. But like you said, if you don't have a break, you, you're so immersed in this stuff that you don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Keila, do you want to share something? Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, thanks, Ashley. I think um, one of the things that struck me is as we were talking and thinking about it, and I mean, we talked about this in the Bible study and it's come up a couple times before, but I think um, the one, I can't remember who it was, she was talking about her cousin that she loved so much. And I was thinking about how she started from this place of love to ask these questions. And I think that that was what a lot of us have said before. Like, that was my thing. It's like, the people I love who are Muslim or Jewish don't believe in Jesus, so now God doesn't love them and they can't, they have to go to hell. Like, this doesn't make sense. And I think that, you know, coming from that place of, the question of how how do I reconcile what I know to be true or what people are telling me to be true about God's love with someone who loves the church but the church doesn't love them back and I thought that that was really powerful and impactful and the, 
it just went out of my head. Oh God, what's gonna say? It's gonna be so good. Um, I don't know. It'll probably come back to me if it was important. It'll come back. But um, yeah, thinking about. Oh, oh, I know what I was gonna say. And the other thing I noticed too, and I think this has been historically true, is that a lot of the. It looks like a lot of the women who went to the seminary came from these places, these families where education was valued, they were, you know, they were, they were expected to explore, they were expected to think, and then so then they go to a seminary where they get, and this is what struck me too, even though it's, it's progressive, it's still full of sexism, but because it still allowed them the freedom to think and to question and to critically ask questions, that that empowered them. And um, and I was thinking about that like historically, even with like white women, a lot of times it's, if they come from these very, these families where they teach their daughters to read and they teach, their, you know, like there becomes more of a space for this. And I think that the great fear, my family's in Florida. Um, and, you know, the great fear is not even so much that, um, black women will think for themselves, but that once white women are taught to think for themselves, then things will really change. Like, it's like a really, it's, it's like, that's the real fear that DeSantis and others have, right? Like, we gotta stop woke, because it's not, we're not worried about black kids being woke, but we're worried about our white kids getting woke. So I think it's like thinking about these different theologies and ways of encountering the world and asking these questions opens up these possibilities um, that weren't there. And if we start from a place of love, then we can really get to the hard questions. I think that's it. That was awesome. Yeah, um, I prepared a PowerPoint of like photos by black female photographers to kind of showcase you. I, w I really wanted to immerse you into this black womanist theology space visually through your ears through what I'm saying and through what you hear and through what you see um, but as I was doing that especially some of the current photographers it was exactly as you were talking about Akilah like there was this one foot photo of this woman with her big belly pregnant belly out just sitting there proud that was the photographer taking a self-portrait and I was like you know in a lot of ways sometimes black women liberate us before we even know we need to be liberated because there's so much, sometimes a lot of shame around women as they get bigger when they're pregnant and wanting to hide it and, you know, and, and here I am seeing this image with a wife who's pregnant and just being like, wow, we, we, sh we can't and we should be proud that we get to create life in our bodies, you know? And, but like I, yeah, like I said earlier in the, in the book club, like we assume that, well, because one group thinks this way and we don't anymore, everything's fine. We assume that evangelicalism in their megachurches is fine as long as it doesn't affect our worship. But the reality is, is that oppression affects everyone, even theological oppression. And evangelicalism affects all of us as it slowly chips away at civil rights. And so we can't live siloed lives. We can't live this kind of deeply American life where we're like, well, you can believe what you want, we'll believe what we want. We have to remain in community in discussion, and we have to push towards freedom for all people, um, even theological freedom. Any other thoughts? 
I just have a question. Um, so I only in the last year or so probably even heard the term womanist. Like I didn't have any idea what it was. Um, so I'm interested in it, I'm curious, but do you have any recommendations for a book like that's like encapsulates it, so to speak? Yes. So before I tell you the book name, we often think like, oh, there's church stuff, there's religion. And we re read religious authors and we sing religious music and that is compartmentalized here. And that really just stays here on Sunday morning. And then there's books about sexuality that are like by atheists or radicals or sometimes really you know, cool people. And then there's like books about geography or whatever. Anyway, that's not how life works. So if I wanna give you um, a book to help you think about womanist theology well, I don't even think you need to start with them. I think you need to start with Angela Davis. Women, race, class, it's so good and it will really ground you in the reality of womanist thinking, uh, black feminist thinking, and just the reality of our life today. <laughs> but uh, it's really good. Angela Davis, I think it's called Race, Class, and Gender, uh, or Woman, ra Women, Race, and Class. Women, Race, and Class. Um, and Angela Davis is a really brilliant um, political activist, but she's also accessible. Like, you hear, you can, read her and understand. I think sometimes when I read progressive authors, I just, it's so over my head, but she's really incredible. I would start there. And then I would check out Sexuality in the Black Church, but start there. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for, for speaking. The video is amazing. You, you made a comment about intersectionality and that sparked a question in my head and just how womanist thought or womanist theological thought has intersected or how how much it does intersect with uh, queer theologies and like trans theology um, specifically around womanist theology being about women and does that is that inclusive or is that sort of exclusive historically to cis women or is that is it fairly inclusive of all women or uh, yeah so I think the biggest gift that womanist theology does is it, it shatters our white male God obsession with straight male guy in the sky and it really brings the divine back into human beings and so womanist theology is not exclusive in any way it is definitely led by the lived experiences of black women but it is not exclusive. In the same way that the civil rights movement is not an exclusively African-American movement, but affects every human being and is a model for all human, all different nations on how to fight for civil liberties, womanist theology is not exclusive. Um, it is open and centered away from this patriarchal God in the sky that we've been taught to be obsessed with and fear towards the divine feminine uh, specifically the black divine feminine. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks. Any other thoughts? Before we close, I do want to encourage you to remember that as a church, as Central Avenue Church, as this community of people who have deconstructed and are continuing to deconstruct, you have been 
given the calling to create a safe space for other people to wrestle and heal and grow and learn in a way that so, so many other churches have not been or cannot even provide. And so I want you to remember that, that God has blessed you all with a special calling to really be this beacon of hope for people stumbling out of the evangelical church, grasping on for hope and for life. Um, and that is a special, unique calling. And I saw that today in the book club, what a sweet, beautiful community you guys are building. And I hope that you understand that and see that and see what a gift it is, because who knows, who knows who's going to come out of Central Avenue Church and lead other people to do the same and lead other communities to do the same. And we all get to be part of that, part of creating that space, that holy, sacred space where people can heal and be reborn in a new, healthy kind of way. Not to use that kind of terminology, but, you know, renewed is better, right? Renewed is better. So thank you all. And I'll see you guys later. Have a good one.